My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. On the Sunday after Thanksgiving, it's always sort of an a emptier Sunday. Um, and we're kind of a funny church. We fill in from the back, almost like, I am not going to sit toward the front unless every other option has been foreclosed. So um, I was thinking maybe if, if you guys are, except you two, I'll acknowledge you. Um, like, could we move up? Would you guys be open to doing that this morning? If you guys could just kind of fill these front rows, we'll, we'll sort of be one big happy family. We are all part of the household of God, so let's join each other toward the front. And then I won't feel like I'm shouting across a chasm to you on the other side. <laughs> you smart alky. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Welcome, welcome. All right, guys, well, welcome. By the way, on future Sundays, you are, you are allowed to do this. These are actual rows that are open for seating, so you can absolutely feel free to just mess with people. Man, that's what we should do next week. Just mess with people, and all, all of you sit right here, and it will just completely rearrange the room. It will be epic. Anyway, good morning. Yeah. That's right. There you go. That's what we'll do. All right. So this is the first Sunday in Advent. So what what Advent is, Advent is a season in what's called the the church calendar. So what the church calendar does is from Christmas to about Easter, it walks you through the the life of Christ. And then um, from from then on, the church calendar does some other things. But prior to Christmas, the, the church calendar includes this season called Advent, where the people of God come together to identify with the longing of Israel. We come together to identify with the longing of Israel for Messiah. But in a very real sense, on the other hand, we also are waiting for an advent. We too are waiting for the second advent of Messiah. And so it's this very important part of the church calendar. We at Trinity don't, don't traditionally practice the whole thing, but we do practice advent. And so I just encourage you to, to take advantage of the season. I mean, this is meant to be a, a season for reflection and for spending lots of time with the people God has given you to love. And oftentimes, just because of the, the nature of our culture and our society, we, we tend to, to really struggle to say no to things, and our time just sort of slips out of our fingers like water through a sieve. And, and before we know it, it's Christmas, and we aren't really present mentally at all. So I just encourage you to, to do whatever you can to take advantage of Advent. Like these four weeks are, are here for us to really contemplate the, the meaning of, of the fact that, that not only has Messiah shown up, but he turned out to be God. And so for, for us to, I think it's just an important thing for us to take that time. I encourage you to set aside time. If you have kids that are sort of like six or up, um, there's a, a book that the children's ministry emailed about called Prepare Him Room. I encourage you to walk through that. If you have real young kids, so all my kids are real young, we're going to be using the expected one. You can see how thin this thing is. It's like a paragraph of text and then questions with answers provided. So it's, it's just ideal for, for really, really young kids. So we're going to be using that resource. This is a, a daily devotional. Here's another one that's kind of fun for, for adults. This one is uh, called, called Come Thou Long Expected Jesus after the song we just sung. And it just c- collects different readings from guys as, as far back as Augustine and as recent as John Piper and guys like that. So come that long expected Jesus. 
And then after Christmas, so in the, in the 12 days of Christmas that lead up to Epiphany, I'll be reading On the Incarnation by Athanasius. If you're kind of interested in just like history and, and stuff like that, um, Athanasius was present at the Council of Nicaea, and uh, it went on to, to write a, a book. And there's still actually a lot in the book that is, is hugely meaningful today. So I'll, I'll be reading that. I, I encourage you to, to join me if you're, if you're into that kind of thing. So on to today's passage. So this Advent, we really want to spend time identifying with Israel's long, and we talked about that. And we're going to do it this Advent by looking at writings out of the prophets of Israel, the prophets of Israel. So the prophets were kind of an interesting bunch. They, they predicted events in the future. That was, that was sort of a, a small fraction of what they did. A lot of time, they, they really acted sort of as preachers for the nation of Israel, calling them back to the way of, of God, calling them back to the true nature of of what God wanted for them. Uh, and they did it all through really, really good poetry, which makes it even cooler. They somehow managed to like call Israel back to following their God, call them out when they went astray, um, and when they were beaten down, they gave them reasons to hope. They did all of that through, through almost entirely stunning poetry. I mean, ancient Near Eastern scholars, Christian, non-Jewish, non, consider the, the, the prophets of Israel to be some of the greatest literary artists of the ancient Near East. So it, it's just kind of this amazing thing that these preachers, that these prophets also happen to be pretty incredible poets as well. So this Advent, we're going to look at a few poems written by the prophets, and, and each of these poems is talking about a figure called Messiah. We've heard about the, a, lot, a lot about this in our series on Matthew, the Messiah. Messiah is sort of the ultimate king who will come to restore all things. And so this whole series is going to sort of explore, you know, how this figure of Messiah got developed in, in the minds of the prophets and, and what it really meant and what it means for us today. But today we're just going to start, sort of lay a groundwork. We're just going to ask, who is Messiah? And we're going to be looking at a poem out of the book of Isaiah. So... The, the poem is on six, uh, 609, page 609 in the Pew Bibles. Feel free to, to open that up and, and take a look at it. We'll be jumping around just a little bit. Actually, probably a little bit, a lot. But like, a lot in Isaiah. So having a Bible open may help, but mo- any, any passage that isn't today's passage will be on the screen. So uh, don't, don't feel like you, you'll need to have you know, multiple fingers bookmarking different pages or whatever. So Isaiah was a prophet of Israel. He began writing a little bit before the exile into Assyria, and he might have been writing all the way to the end of, of the exile in, in Babylon. Just as likely it could have been a, a, a team of his disciples who kind of carried on his legacy and, and wrote in the, in the tradition of Isaiah. Either way, I, you know, there's really no way to know specifically, but, but what's important is that the book of Isaiah is this very sort of interconnected, coherent book. It's like, it's like this giant body of thought. So the first half, the first 40 chapters, all it's doing is, you know, the big theme is announcing the judgment of God on Israel. And then at chapter 41, there's this shift, or at chapter 40, there's this shift, and suddenly God is announcing the restoration of Israel, the the forgiveness, the way forward after judgment. And so it's out of that second half that we get today's passage. And it's it's one of a number of passages that that have come to be called the servant songs. And the reason why is because they, they mention this figure the servant of Yahweh, or the servant of the Lord. So it's from that passage that we're going to sort of get an aerial view of what this whole Messiah thing is about. So the first th- thing, the first part of our, our answer to who is Messiah is that Messiah is the servant of the Lord. So 
At this point in the book of Isaiah, whenever the title, the servant of the Lord, has shown up, it's been about Israel. It's been about Israel, the nation. So now it would be completely right and logical for you to be like, then why did you just say it's Messiah? That'll take me the next 10 minutes. So basically, what, 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 up to this point in the book, anytime the servant of the Lord has been mentioned, it's been talking about the nation of Israel. And so I'm going to show a couple passages, because I think it's kind of cool to see the way that this actually develops. Because really what, what chapter 49, we're in the first six verses of chapter 49 today, what chapter 49 is doing, it's culminating this huge thing that's sort of been building across the book. And so we're just going to walk through it. I think it's the best way to do it. So the first passage that will go up on the screen is Isaiah 41, 8 through 10. It says this, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I've chosen you and not cast you off, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So this is the first time that this language of the servant has been used. And obviously, if if we're reading this passage, who's the servant? Israel, right? The nation of Israel is the servant. So here, basically, what what, what Isaiah is doing in this passage up on the screen, Isaiah is sort of poetically reminding God's people of what they're there for. He's reminding God's people of what they're there for. Israel was called into being to be blessed by God, but they were also blessed to be a blessing. They had this very special purpose. And that purpose was that Israel was going to be the center of God's plan. They were going to be the center of God's plan for redemption. So basically, God was going to use Israel not only to sort of bless them and then but like silo them off in the desert somewhere, but instead, through their way of life, through their worship, they were going to extend God's blessing to the nations. So that the, the, the hope of humanity was riding on Israel. God's plan for all humanity was, was going to be rolled out through the people of Israel. And, and here, here's kind of how that would work. A big part of it would, would, would be through the actual lives of the Israelites themselves. So as Israel followed the way of God, there, there'd be this kind of nationwide picture of what God is like. There'd be a nationwide picture of life as it was meant to be lived. And what would end up happening is that God would actually be put on display. So the, the nature of God would be shown to the world. So a couple examples. So out of Israel's love for the poor, they would display God's justice. Out of their worship, they would display God's glory and worth. Out of their work and their habits, they would display God's righteousness and, and goodness. Who God is was going to be shown by how they lived. And so the idea was that as Israel sort of faithfully held to the way of God, as they, they faithfully leaned on his grace, as they announced the law of God, people from all the nations around Israel would start to sort of be drawn in. The idea that people from all over would recognize the goodness of God and come out of alienation and back into intimacy with their creator. And so really what we're talking about is redemption. I mean, this is sort of the, 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 the saving of the world, that God's plan for saving the world is going to roll itself out through Israel. They were the vehicle. So it's this amazing calling. The hopes of all humanity rode on what God was going to do through the Jews. And so that's kind of what this, this first passage, this, this passage out of Isaiah 41 is reminding them of there at the beginning, that you are my servant. You are going to serve my purposes in the world. So shortly after that passage, 
Isaiah develops this idea even more. He returns to this language of, of the servant. And he, he sort of, what he, what he does is he expresses what Israel is going to be all about. So let's go to the next passage. So check out how this one opens. It opens with, behold my servant. Behold my servant. So who's God talking to here? Well, it's not Israel. Because Israel is the servant. I, I think Isaiah is doing this thing where, where he's, he's like poetically imagining this, this situation where God is before the nations and is saying, here's my servant. How awesome is this, right? Like where he's, he's saying, behold my servant. Behold what, what my people are going to do. And so here's how it plays out. It says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he won't quench. So these are all images of, of caring for the, the downtrodden. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He won't grow faint or be discouraged. So in other words, he's not going to ever give up about this purpose that he has to bring justice and to extend extend God's way to the nations. He, he won't be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. He says, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. So now he's talking to the servant. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant, a promise for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass. New things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. This is this beautiful, cool passage where God is announcing sort of who his people were meant to be, what the servant was meant to be like. So Isaiah is kind of giving us this picture of the ideal Israel. Now, of course, some things have changed. So what what we're also seeing in this passage is some development. Even from the first passage to this one, there's been some development. So we know that the servant of Yahweh is Israel. We got that from chapter 41, but, but now we see something else. Because, of course, Israel never actually lived up to this. Like, what we just read totally never described them accurately, right? Like, they never lived up to this, this thing. And so the servant turns out to be sort of Israel, but also not Israel, right? Israel, but not Israel. But I want us to take a second and just see how cool this description is. What Isaiah describes here, at least just speaking for myself, I, just, I feel stirred up when I read this. There, there's this sense where, where the servant sort of has strength that comes from God, not from himself. There's this sense of, of, of the servant being strong somehow, but not harming. Instead, all that strength is used for gentleness. There's this imagery of freedom and liberation. There's this relationship that you see where, where God, the creator, takes the servant by the hand. It's this, like this intimacy shared between the creator and the servant. I think this is what all of us were made for. I think this is what God wanted, wants for all people. I think this is what God wants for you. That what we read in this passage is, is a description of the purpose of all humanity. 
justice, goodness, this deep intimacy with our maker. It's a life worth sacrificing for. It's a life worth more than all the comfort and entertainment, achievement, whatever. Whatever else it is I'm doing to be whole, it can be set aside. If I can just be, if I can just have that. So I want us to take a second and just kind of relate to how meaningful this passage is, this, this, this poem in Isaiah 42 that we just read. That's what we want to be. Israel was meant to be God's servant because really all of us were meant to be God's servants. So it's this beautiful moment in the book of Isaiah. But of course, like I said, if we're just reading through Isaiah, by the time we come to this passage, it's kind of sad, right? Like the, the reason it's sad is because Israel did not turn out like this. None of us have lived up to this. Israel was not able to carry the responsibility for saving the world. This does not describe any of us accurately. It didn't describe Israel accurately. So by the time we get to this moment in Isaiah, there's kind of this sense of longing where we almost sense this like grief in the poetry. Behold my servant, the one I wish I could introduce to the nations. All right, so let's just say we're reading straight through Isaiah. We'd eventually come to today's passage. Again, uh, page 609. The first three verses say this. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention you peoples from afar. So now God is again addressing the nations. We've just heard him do this. So already our ears would sort of be pricked up to say, oh, I I bet he's going to introduce the servant again. The Lord called me from the womb. Something's changed. The servant is now the one talking. God called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now remember, if you're just reading Isaiah for the first time, up to this point, you think the servant of God is kind of this like ideal Israel. So what you'd see is, is sort of a summary here, right? Like Israel called out to act as a witness to the world. That, that's kind of the image of, of, of God calling him from the womb. You'd see this imagery of, of, of the nation be, being given a great task. You have this, this sort of like the hidden arrow in the quiver, like the secret weapon, right? So the secret weapon for redemption is Israel. So you have kind of this summary of everything that we've seen before. You see all these themes coming together, and then Isaiah pulls a fast one on us, and suddenly we hear the servants say, I've labored in vain. Verse 4, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Israel was meant to bring God's rule, God's law, God's way of life to the nations. We can read how that history unfolds across the Bible again and again. It becomes clear that really, when you get down to it, God's people end up being not that much different from the rest of humanity. Israel again and again just chooses the habits of their time, the idols of their time. They again and again choose to live like the others around them. They lose all their distinctiveness, and so they lose all effectiveness. And it happens in a couple of ways, but a couple of the major ones that the prophets end up bearing down on through a lot of their writings, they become apathetic to the poor, and they become apathetic in worship. Instead, what ends up happening is they just sort of go through the motions, they still identify as the people of God, they take some sort of meaning but there's, out of that, but there's no real authenticity. They aren't truly loving God 
with their heart and soul and mind and strength. And so this all culminates in God withdrawing his presence from them. The temple's destroyed. Exile happens. The total loss of identity is this terrible thing. And so Isaiah has the servant speak here, right? And he says words of failure, right? I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing. Vanity. It's all just been vapor. This whole thing was a joke in the end. It's kind of a strange moment, right? Because you have Israel talking for Israel. You have this figure, the servant, who is Israel, but also not Israel. And he's talking for Israel and saying all oh, this thing. This is all just vanity. The hope of redemption fails because it was too big a task for God's people to handle. Redemption fails with Israel because it was too big of a task for God's people to handle. I think all of us can agree that something is wrong with the world. Some of us think the problem is that people don't have enough resources to live fulfilling lives, and so we want to see markets expanded, wealth increased, because that will fix the problem. Others of us think really the problem is inequality, and so really wealth actually needs to get redistributed more evenly, justly, and that we won't be in competition, we won't be looking you know, at each other's goods, kind of coveting and creating discontentment, we won't be ruled by advertising like we are, and so then we'll be happy. Others think that the problem isn't economic at all. Really, the problem is that we're still entertaining too many desires. This would be the, the position of, of most Buddhists. And so we need to let go of desire so we can be content and, and peaceful. Others of us think the problem is that we're too narrow-minded. What we really need to do is sort of expand our definition of truth, so that all of us have the option to sort of make our own meaning out of life. Others of us think that, that we're caught in the illusion of reality. This would be the position of most Hindus, and we need to realize our oneness with all things, and then finally we'll be psychologically free. Others think humans just need to quit being so selfish. I think for anyone that you pass on the street, you can ask them something that's wrong with the world, they will be able to tell you a number of things wrong with the world, and they'll have some sort of solution that they, that they think is probably the right one. And then you can talk to the next person in line at the coffee shop, and they'll tell you something different. But here's what's clear right off the bat. We all agree there's something wrong with us. And here's what should be clear to us after literally millennia of trying to solve the problem. It should be clear to us that whatever it is that's wrong with us, we are not the ones who will fix it. We are not the ones who will fix it. And this should come as no surprise to a Christian. We believe that this helplessness to fix the world, we believe that's real. That we actually are helpless to fix the world. To fix ourselves. We cannot redeem this place. We cannot redeem ourselves. And if we try, we will labor in vain because we aren't up to the task. Here in this passage, we listen to the servant lament the failure of Israel, the failure of all humanity to be what they were supposed to be. He says, I've labored in vain. But then he says this, but surely my right is with the Lord. My recompense is with God. And so the servant here, he's speaking sort of for all Israel. He turns to God as the source of hope. At the core of the scriptures is this idea that if anything is going to change about the world, it cannot be affected by people. Instead, the only, thing that, the only way that things are going to change, the only way that we are going to be re- reunited with our purpose, with our creator, is if he does something. He has to break in and act on our behalf. 
Our only hope is divine intervention. The prophets of Israel knew that if anything was going to change, it would require us to not be us. (laughs) We cannot do it ourselves. And so we need a representative. We need someone to do it for us. Steve coined a phrase I thought was pretty cool. He, he, He thought of Messiah as the one who that we look to and say, let him be us. We need a Messiah. We need someone, this is the second part of the sentence, we need someone who can be the servant of God that we could not be. And this is a big hurdle for us Westerners, I think, because we're, we are so individualistic. So just think about, like, let's, let's say you were somebody who had come from a really difficult past, just mired in material poverty, and you worked your way up to you know, sort of self-sufficiency or whatever, as, as you were telling that story to somebody, here's my guess. As you were telling that story and noticing all the, all the things that, that you did, all the bravery and the courage that required to, to make your way to the top, what you might find yourself doing, if you're like 99.9% of all the other humans in the world, what you might find yourself doing is sort of downplaying all those moments where people helped you. What you might find yourself doing is sort of just... Mentioning those, give them an honorable mention, but then really we're going we're gonna to focus in on how epic I was after I decided to get myself into a better position in life. Why would you even have that impulse? I mean, it's just like a weird impulse, but we all have it. I think it's because we, we somehow feel like we aren't worth as much if someone had to step in for us. It's this bizarre thing. Like, we place this really high value on being self-made, self-starting, self-governing, self-sufficient, self-motivated. We measure how well we're doing in life by how independent we are. And so we feel like our very story is more shameful if we have to mention that we were helped. Am I alone in this? I feel like this is just sort of an American cultural thing, right? We are deeply individualistic. Sometimes when we're putting all this pressure on ourselves to be something that we can never be, it just becomes this unbearable burden because none of us actually live up to what we know we should be. The best we can ever muster is like, I'm doing pretty well, right? That's the best we can ever muster because at the end of the day, like, to find any sort of confidence, what we end up doing is we sort of look around at how well we're doing compared to most other people, and then that makes us feel more comfortable. But we aren't actually meeting the standard, In our most honest moments, I think we know that we fall way short. I think being you becomes a burden when you have to be everything. Being you becomes a burden when you have to be everything. Aren't we sick enough of ourselves? We need somebody that we can look to and say, Let him be us. Let all the pressure of living up to what we're meant to be, let all that pressure fall on him. Let him be us. And we need whoever that is to be able to rise up to the challenge. That's what Isaiah knew. It's what the prophets and preachers of Israel knew. They knew that Israel had failed to be that. But Israel, or humanity, still needed an Israel. They still needed something to look to and say, 
Let them be us. Let him be us. And so now Isaiah is rolling out this figure of the servant of God. He shows us something. It's amazing how he does it. It is like a literary magic trick. So check this out, verse 5. He says, And now the Lord said, again, this is still the servant talking, And now the Lord said, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. Hold up. I thought you were Israel. The Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Israel back to him. Are you Israel or aren't you Israel? Suddenly Isaiah's done this like literary magic trick where now the servant is not just idealized Israel. It's a person. Now suddenly the servant is saying that he has been called to bring Israel back. We realize that Isaiah isn't talking about the nation anymore. He is talking about one person, one man, the secret weapon of God who will carry the task of redemption to completion. We realize Isaiah is talking about the one who can be us for us. He's someone who embodies everything that Israel was supposed to be. He's going to draw together the people of God, but not only that, I, I love in the next verse, this is, so this is where it goes. I'll, I'll read this first. Servant talking. I'm honored in the eyes of, Yah, of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it's too light of a thing that you should be my servant. It's too small. It's too minute. It's not in keeping with how awesome you are that you should just be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'm going to make you a light for the nations, and my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. The servant isn't just going to bring together a people for God. He's going to do what God's people were supposed to do from the beginning, bring God to the world. Messiah is the servant of God we could not be who does what we cannot do. Isaiah has just showed us who Messiah is. He's the one that we've been waiting for because he is the one that we can look to and say, let him be us. He's the only one who is up for the task. And this is why Christmas is a big deal. Christmas is a big deal because on Christmas we are celebrating the fact that God has stepped in to do what no human, what no nation was capable of. We fail to be the servant of God, and so God takes it on himself. He doesn't come to us in power with a royal entourage. He comes as a servant laid in a feeding trough to a family too poor to afford a lamb to sacrifice. So they end up having to sacrifice doves when they go to the temple. All the humanity, all the hopes of humanity are riding on the shoulders of this servant, the one who will humble himself and be us for us. And then suddenly so much of the life of Jesus makes sense. Like Jesus lives the story of Israel because he has come to do what they were tasked to do. Why does Matthew want us to know that Jesus was once in Egypt and then left? Why does Jesus want to get baptized in the Jordan River that Israel once crossed? Why does Jesus want to be tested in the wilderness? For 40 days, just as Israel was tested for 40 years. Why does he call 12 disciples? Why does he climb a mountain to deliver a new law, to shape a new people? Why does he reach out to Gentiles? Let him be us. Jesus is the servant of God we could not be who does what we cannot do. Jesus comes to represent Israel. Jesus comes to represent us and to carry the redemptive project of God to its completion. Christmas at the end of the day is awesome because it's the gospel. 
It is the news that Jesus has come as our representative. It is the news that someone has come up that we can look to and say, let him be us. Let him be us. Let him be Messiah. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to um, be in awe of you right now. I pray that you would fill us with a desire to worship you as king. God, thank you that you were us for us. that you were not discouraged in the end. I'll read out of Isaiah 42 as I pray. Lord Jesus, you were the servant. You are the servant. God's spirit was upon you to bring forth justice to the nations. You did not cry aloud or lift up your voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed you did not break. A faintly burning wick you did not quench, and you faithfully brought forth the justice of the kingdom of God. You did not grow faint or discouraged till you had accomplished what you came to do in the cross and the resurrection. We, the nations, have been waiting for your law. You are the Lord, called in righteousness. You have made a way that we too can be taken by the hand and kept. To know you, Lord, as Father. Because you gave us your Son, Jesus. I pray that this Christmas, Lord, we would be um, alert to the glory of the manger and what it is you came to do. We love you, Lord. Amen.